listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. listening to episode 5 of Messy Jesus Business. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. Our guest today is D.L. Mayfield. She is a writer and neighbor on the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. Her most recent book is The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power, published by IVP. Side note, exciting side note, the first two listeners who email their mailing address to messyjesusbusiness at gmail.com will receive a complimentary copy of DL's new book from IVP. You can learn more about DL and check out her awesome writing and work at dlmayfield.com. The conversation I had with DL explored all sorts of topics, including prayer, white American, evangelicalism, Catholic social teaching, lament, Dorothy Day, and the common good. Enjoy! Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. I'm so happy to be here. Yay, and congratulations on your new book, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power, from IVP Press, published this year, 2020, uh, in April, right, is when it came out? I think technically it was May 5th, but you know, it's a pandemic, so (laughs) who who cares? (laughs) Right. Right, right. Well, congratulations. And I um, have been a fan of your work ever since I first met you, I think back in, was it 2016, maybe? And that's, yeah, yeah. And it was right before your first book came out, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. So uh, you're kind of the perfect guest for Messy Jesus Business, because I think without you ever using the word messy, like I do, we're writing about the same sort of things, about how being a Christian and in our modern world is complicated (laughs) and challenging, especially once you're awake to systemic injustice. So thank you. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Um, I was wondering, actually, before we get into the questions that I've prepared, if you have your book nearby, and if you'd be up for reading um, a little bit of the introduction. Okay, sure. 
Yeah, I um, I also introduced the book with a scripture verse, which is really important, and it's sort of a signal for me growing up in white evangelicalism where uh, quoting the Bible is extremely important. So I'll read the scripture verse first and then the first three paragraphs. So the verse uh, is from 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'm on a walk in my neighborhood in January. The air is cold, the ground is wet, but the sun breaks out for a few moments. I see sidewalks on a side street and I'm struck by the green moss growing on them. It reminds me of old growth. The, moth, the moss has been there for a long time and it will remain until whatever it is affixed to crumbles into dust. Other things I see on my walk, a used diaper, a pile of orange colored vomit, the father of my daughter's schoolmate driving away in a small red car, two for sale signs on houses, hot sauce packets scattered on the ground, trees bare and stretching to the sky. Yet the moss hums with a vibrancy. It clings and covers that which remains. My son calls it fairy carpet because I taught him to say this. I'm working on seeing little bits of magic where I can. I teach my children and they teach me. Our sight lines going to such different places. Look up, look down. I am learning to look at the ground again, to marvel at the good and the bad equally. I'm learning to let the place teach me. This is probably as zen as I will ever get meditating on bright green moss on a cold January day. This is how I am paying attention today. I used to prayer walk, bold as brass, longing to witness to others. Now I walk the streets that make up my under-resourced, glorious neighborhood, and I try to lean into the gift of being a witness to the good and the bad of the world, to articulating the reality of my neighbors, to God's presence and God's absence. I guess this means I've undergone a conversion of sorts. I suppose this means I am probably trying to convert you too. Thank you. It's so lovely. And it hooked me for sure when I started reading it. <laughs> Thank you. And also, if I can just comment that as a Franciscan, a third order Franciscan, one of our core values is con the continual call to conversion. And so this especially spoke to me and and I love the theme and the way you sort of are packaging and introducing what the book's all about as a story of conversion and transformation which ultimately um, I don't know if you'd agree but in my experience is the Christian journey right yeah I love this I really I'm really excited to hear your perspective on that because I'm someone who you know, has not been raised in the Catholic tradition. My mom actually was raised Catholic and then converted to evangelicalism. And I was actually sort of raised that Catholics were not on the narrow path <laughs> to God, you know? Mm -hmm. And now my mom is even sort of coming back from that journey and, and sort of reaching into our Catholic history again. And so it's so great to hear that from you because I think a hallmark of my growing up was that evangelical, like, conversion was a one-time experience that got you into the fold, right? And that is not the same as discipleship, as every day waking up and saying, this is my day to partner with God's work, you know, that's already going on in the world. I think the book has a really intense title, The Myth of the American Dream. And, you know, when maybe people see that title, they think I'm going to explain how bad America is and all that stuff. That's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to say, I'm trying to wake up every morning pay attention to what's actually going on in the world and to be a tiny part of partnering with God. And for me, that's really combating a few things that come from my background, which is the dominant culture of America, you know, white, middle-class, Christian, 
Um, and a part of that is just saying, we don't have a lock on this. We're not going to be the ones to bring God's kingdom. That's really what I was taught. We just get to be a tiny part and, and we get to pay attention as one of our main ways of being a witness to the world instead of being the one to witness to and convert the world. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't know how that feels to you as a, as a Catholic, but in many ways, I'm, I'm trying to write about white evangelicalism in particular. Yeah. And by the end of the book, I, I think I make it clear that we have to branch out. People who come from my background, we have to branch out into other forms of our faith, into the much wider community, if we're going to uh, move forward in our faith expression. And so I, I'm just enjoying so many people, you know, are being drawn to liturgical traditions, to the Catholic faith. I'm one of those people. I just, I love <laughs> so much about it. I think, uh, I don't know if you've gotten to that part in the book yet, but I'm very obsessed with Dorothy Day. Yeah, I just read it this morning. Prominently <laughs> in my book. And there's just so much the Catholic expression can teach us white evangelicals. It's kind of an exciting time. Mm. You, you know, you mentioned something about like partnering with God, which reminds me of how when um, I was preparing for my final vows and I was starting to discern whether I really wanted to commit my whole life to this radical form of discipleship, um, the way I started to think about it was that like I'm, I'm called to be a co-creator with God. And I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a partnership in the way that you might experience with your husband of like, we're making something together here. And I don't understand it, <laughs> but I do experience the mystery of it, of like, whoa, God just works through me. Something powerful, something amazing just happened that was beyond my control. And, and so I feel like what I've committed myself to in this partnership with God is sort of like the submission to the holy mystery and I can just bow I can just reverence it and recognize that I'm a little instrument in in the coming of God's reign which which I do believe is something that somehow mysteriously we do get to play a part in yeah and it is such an amazing mystery I think uh you know I kind of talk about these four values that I think have really shaped the cultural imagination in the United States, which is affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. And at the end of the book, in the power section, I talk about how white evangelicals in particular, our theology is so influenced by this idea of exceptionalism mm. that we have to see ourselves at the top of the hierarchy to you know, oppress and conquer other people. Mm. And it's just really, really depressing for so many reasons but I think one way is it is absolutely like spiritually stifling so mm -hmm. my first book assimilate or go home was sort of about me just being an abject failure at converting people to be just like me right and it turned out to be the best thing ever because now like the weight of the world is not on my shoulders I don't have to say I have God I'll figure it out I don't have to make people to be just like me and I get to just be like one tiny ant like that's how I think of myself I'm just one little ant yeah you know, in, in God's creation and it actually feels so much better to be like <laughs> yeah. I'm just doing this with so many people and um you know that's why I also think a lot of people like myself are being drawn to liturgical prayer um and liturgical worship because we were raised with such an individualistic approach to prayer like 
I, I talked to kids who like grew up in like evangelical youth group. And if there's ever like a public prayer time, it was just so anxiety producing. Cause you had to like come up with the best prayer ever to like show mm. how spiritual you were. And now we just love liturgy because we get to rest in these prayers that are being prayed by so many people. And we get mm. to have that experience of being a part of something that's so much bigger than ourselves. And I, I think Americans and white Americans are just so unused to that experience. So for me, it's just been it's just been incredible, the spiritual relief of just saying, I'm just one tiny person. And like you were saying, you're a co-creator, which is so great. And then we get to see how so many other people are co-creators right. with God, even though, even if they're not going to use that language to say that. Right. But once you view yourself as that, you it's so much easier to see other people. I, that's my experience. I don't know if you have Yeah, yeah. Well, it, okay. So what you're talking about, like prayer group, evangelical, and I, I visited those those areas at one point, <laughs> and um, you're right. It's it's very different, very different energy. But I'm wondering if if the way you would like describe if what you're talking about it, leading those prayers was actually is makes faith more performative than actually a genuine um, heartfelt uh, exploration of like discovery and. And failure, like you say. Right? Yeah, I, it's funny because I think when, especially when you're a teenager, it is very heartfelt. But I think what's interesting is for me, I'm now in my mid-30s and my husband and I do, we've tried to do like this Tuesday night prayer group, you know, for the past s several years and um, trying to invite people to a prayer group, they get so nervous and anxious, right? And so mm. I think they really meant it when they were teens. And now as the world has sort of like broken them or they've been really disappointed or terrible things have happened, they're just like, I don't know. I don't know what, how to pray. And I mm. certainly don't want to go pretend that I have everything figured out and pray out loud. And so it's been this really interesting experience of inviting people into like, actually, this is just about praying liturgy, taking these burdens off our shoulders and giving the troubles of our world back to God. That's just what we're doing. Hmm. And the heart of prayer is actually just having an honest conversation with God, which is not what we were taught as a youth. Right. And so hmm. prayer is just an honest conversation. So it's been really cool to see people be like, I never thought I would go to a like want to go to a prayer night again. And just huh. like, what actually, were you taught that prayer was when you were a kid? Yeah, I think um, for me, it was just, you know, you ask God for the right things and you sort of like get your mind right and try and get yourself in line with God. Um, and again, I don't think it's all bad. It's just, it wasn't a place for questions or lament, which when you go back and read scripture is really fascinating. Yeah. So many of the Psalms are just bizarre and very full of like real human emotion. But again, going back to this idea of American exceptionalism and like white Western Christian triumphalism, mm -hmm. those are things that really influence our worship, our prayer, um, you know, how our churches are set up. Uh, all that stuff, it really does impact us. And so for me, I, I really try and write about this a lot in the book is, is learning to embrace lament as a spiritual discipline. And mm -hmm. just, again, it's going back to the honesty of, I trust God is listening. And so I can tell God how upset I am, how disappointed I am, all this stuff. And it's just been really restorative for my faith tradition. And, mm -hmm. I, and I know, as I've been studying Dorothy Day, you know, 
she talked all the time about waking up every morning and reading the Psalms. And it's just like, that's not something I have ever done. And that's Mm. a practice I'm starting to try and implement into my life. And it's kind of uncomfortable. Like I just, Mm -hmm. you know, there's one Psalm that's just like, God, you're the best. I love you. And the next one's like, can you please knock out all the teeth in my enemy's mouth? Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's hard when amazing. I exactly. <laughs> oh shucks. Yeah, right. The Bible's actually a very complicated book, and I don't think we see it that way enough or honor it that way. So um I'm curious, how did your journey um prior to writing this book, like how did it bring you to the point where you wanted to write a critique of the American dream from the perspective of a white evangelical woman in this time in history. Yeah, I think this is this is awesome that I'm getting to talk to you about this a bit because I haven't been able to fully articulate this in, in other spaces. But, you know, these are just issues I've been thinking about for like the last decade. So my story is I ended up moving in and living in low-income housing with refugees. And I've been doing that for about 14 years now with my family living in you know, these kinds of neighborhoods where immigrants and refugees are, where most people are living below the poverty line. And so naturally, I've just started to see the inequalities in my city and in my country. um, And it brings up a lot of questions, you know, is my country really good news for people? Is my religion actually good news for anybody who's not just like me? And I really feel like this book, looking at these values of affluence, autonomy, safety, and power, I'm, I'm interested in interrogating how those values have shaped my life and then inviting my community that I come from to consider that as well. Um, but really, I, I think this book is about trying to help myself and other people come up with a better framework for the common good. And that's actually language mm. that I think is more familiar to Catholics than it Definitely. is to evangelicals. And so I remember when Pope Francis started saying stuff about the common good, I'm like, oh, that, I mean, that's it. That That's my, my book, The Myth of the American Dream, is basically me grieving the fact that my church and my Christianity did not give me a framework for the common good. Uh-huh. And we see the political ramifications of that today. We see like the relational you know, impacts of that today. And so I'm grieving it. And I'm saying the wider Christian world, that's a hallmark. Why is that not a hallmark of white evangelicalism? And that deserves to be a question we sit with. I can't answer that question. I just want to sit with that question. Mm. Mm. And how are you in relationship now with that, that community that gave you such a different vision and understanding? Yeah, I think I think it's a precarious, uh, you know, <laughs> position to be in. Right. I, I think, you know, just on, on one level, uh, since I am writing about myself and my community, it, it's hard. Uh, you know, I, I make sure my mom reads my books and my writings before they get published, and I, I get her feedback on it. Um, but I, I've always joked, like, I'm going to call myself evangelical until I get kicked out, right? Uh, of these spaces, but I've actually been kicked out of a few of them. So it's an interesting experience um, to go through that. But I think some feedback I've gotten from people after they read this book, uh, you know, if they come from a background like me, it's like, okay, well then what's next? Like if it's all bad and we need to burn it all down, like what's next, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's a fascinating 
question if if you want to fix all this really quickly which i don't think can happen but i'm really excited to move forward and say there's been some really rotten fruit that has come out of white evangelicalism and it's time to look at that but as far as next steps it's very exciting to look at where the spirit of god is moving and so again looking at I would say Catholicism, looking at global world expressions of Christianity, Mm -hmm. Um, seeing even right now we have all these protests, um, you know, for Black Lives Matter and seeing people of faith showing up at these protests. Like, I think, I guess I'm not even fixated too much anymore on what's going to happen to white evangelicals. I think that ship has sailed. And now we get to be just a tiny part of this wider expression. I know I keep coming back to that, but that's just extremely exciting for me. And, And I hope we do see some Christian unity around these core principles, like the common good, like God being a creator and that being such an important part of, um, you know, how we view the world, the dignity of all people in all life. I really have found myself coming back to some of these Catholic definitions <laughs> of who God is and how God operates in the world. And it's very exciting. And I know yeah. you guys have your own problems, but because I'm not <laughs> a Catholic, I don't have to worry about that. It's kind of amazing. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm critiquing my own people. So I, I don't want to make it sound like I think everything is awesome in Catholic land, but there's some really exciting, uh, long-term theology that I get to come back and rest in, I think. Mm, mm. And I just love the way you're really connecting to what we call our, the principles of Catholic social teaching and as, as like the best fruits of our church, because um, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I actually thought about leaving the Catholic church when in my early twenties, like a lot of young adults do. And basically then studied Catholic social teaching and realized this is why I'm in this church. And, and then from there, like, as I fell in love with all the principles, human dignity, common good, solidarity, right? Um, And I sort of like found myself alive, energized, on fire, realized this is why I am Catholic. This is why I'm in this church. And then my understanding and appreciation of the liturgy and the sacraments and all of the traditions and devotions sort of followed. So, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that even though you're, you know, you haven't joined the Catholic church, you get to benefit from our teachings and they're speaking to you. And it's it's, so amazing. Yeah. It's, it's a real, I'm, Oh, it makes me so happy. Um, so, okay. All the things that you've learned and, and, you know, come to critique and see, and, um, your, your book is so, does such a great job of like examining, uh, the reality, the truth that, you know, you just tuck in the statistics and the facts in a way that makes it so easy to digest and it's beautiful, poetic even. And I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm just wondering, like, okay, in that question of what's next, uh, what is the, the new message like, that everyone needs to know, you know about what, what is the, the American dream or what was, is misunderstood about the American dream? Or is there even an American dream? You know? Yeah, it's an interesting time to have a book called The Myth of the American Dream right now. Right, uh, exactly. Um, yeah, just let's talk with, about Black Lives Matter, right? <laughs> well, but right. First we had this pandemic and now we have this reckoning um, mm-hmm. with racial terror and racial injustice that has, you know, plagued the United States since the beginning. And so 
I just really want to be clear, like I, I'm running in, in my lane to my people. And there's so many people who've been saying that the American dream is a myth, right? Mm-hmm. So many people, I don't know why people would, would actually want to listen to me when there's been so many people who, who've been saying this. So I guess it's obvious that I want this book to be read by people who have, you know, a toe in on still believing that and a toe out probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's just what I, as someone who loves uh, creative writing and I love essays, it was really important to me to write this book as essays because I want myself to get better at being curious about the world instead of just maybe going into a shame response or, um, you know, disavowing that it's happening. And I really want to just keep trying to just keep trying to figure out what's going on. Where's God at work in the world? Like was what I taught in the history books was that totally accurate like how can I listen to voices that are outside of my world and how can that actually um, be a good thing right I kind of grew up in a little bit of a fundamentalist bubble right where it's like anybody outside of our circle is actually going to tell you lies or something like that so just really Mm. reframing and saying actually inviting more people into your life Um, even those who are going to critique you you know that's not oppression that's accountability and Mm -hmm. so just sort of trying to be in a posture of inviting that into our world. And I would say even in the past few weeks, things have changed dramatically. And I actually have hope that some of this is going to stick. And I I don't want to be like too optimistic, but I also don't want to be totally cynical. Like Mm -hmm. I think business as usual is being interrupted as we know it. Um, I think in publishing on how we interact on social media, um, I I think in huge cultural shifts, it's an, it's a really exciting time to see people changing in real time. And, and, you know, I've taken my kids to a, a protest. I've been to a few of them and just having these discussions with my kids about how things are changing, who we're listening to, all the protests I've been to have been organized by high schoolers. Amazing. Color. Right. It's, yeah. it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I just want to keep cultivating curiosity the ability to say I've been wrong, the ability to listen to other people. And one good thing I'll say about social media is that, of course, it's a fire hose of information. Of course, it's super overwhelming. My personality is such that I tend to get really overwhelmed and despair and anguish and just, Mm. you know what I mean, have a pity party all the time. But I will say the great thing is, even as I, you know, we're still kind of self-quarantined, is we get to invite a lot of really diverse voices into our lives and we could sit and, and listen and reflect without sort of like spewing our own white fragility on to people. You know, mm-hmm. we have the option to just be quiet on social media. Yeah. <laughs> all of us take that option, but that is an option for us. So it's really, and I, you know, I just saw the New York Times, right? The bestseller list for nonfiction. It's like, so many amazing books by people of color or people who are talking about racism in the United States. And right. I just, I'm really excited to say, to see how we're going to keep moving forward from this moment. And I don't think it's going to be a flash in the pan moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If you, I don't mm-hmm. know if you have thoughts on that yourself. Well, I, I agree with you that this is the time of like, the system has been wildly upset and like the systems needed to be upset because as our, as our love Dorothy Day says, it's a dirty, well, maybe she doesn't actually say that, right? A dirty, filthy system or dirty mm-hmm, rotten. Mm-hmm. I've heard different, but anyway, right. it's a dirty system. And we know that social, um, we know that so many injustices are caused by systemic problems. And so the systems need to be upset. 
And the opportunity that gives us is a chance for us to really reimagine and rebuild. And I agree with you that the way to start to do that is to really listen. And that's all we can do as, you know, I'm another white woman. Like it's time for us to step back and to just listen to, um, right, the youth, the people of color, like, and ask them, what, what do you want us to do? How can we assist? You're, we're following your lead now. And we're going to be co-conspirators and we're going to build up the kingdom of peace and justice. But like your call kids, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and so that's, it's very exciting for me. And um, also it kind of reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how in your own conversion story, there was a shift in this space of feeling uh, responsible, like you had to convince everyone to be like you to this place of liberation and freedom where you got to just step back and be like, actually, I just get to pay attention and, and name what I'm seeing. And, and isn't that the work of the spirit that, that kind of matches how I, what I think Jesus has modeled for us to do as well. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. So, so what, I mean, in your, from your perspective though, nonetheless, I mean, you have a wealth of experience. You lived in Minneapolis for three years. Mm -hmm. um, you know the places, you know Lake Street, you know the places where um, this disruption uh, has occurred. And I'm wondering, like, where where's your gaze at this time? Like, who are you listening to? What are, and what are you hearing and seeing? You know, especially as it relates to the themes in your book. Yeah, I think that it's really hard. I live in Oregon now, you know, on the outskirts of Portland. And so I know exactly where, you know, George Floyd was murdered. You know, I know that store. I know many of the places that were burned. I have friends that live there. And so be, just, you know, being friends with people and hearing their on the ground reports, is really different than what's being reported, you know, like on CNN or something. And right. And so I do tend to get overwhelmed when I see all of this happening all over the United States. Um, and, and I think that's okay to be overwhelmed. Again, like if you look at so many of like the front page newspapers, you know, they're just protests everywhere and it's all happening at once. And so it's been a really great time to just continue the work of digging into where you are and seeing what's going on exactly where you are and finding the people who've been doing the work joining them. So this is not the time to like start new work, right? Especially if you're white, this is the time to join the people who've been doing it. And we are seeing some new leaders come out of this again, young, young people of color in particular, but I've just been pretty grateful that I already have these connections for my neighborhood to say, what can I do? How can I show up? Um, and there's still work that needs to be done. I'm sort I'm in this neighborhood that's like in between Portland and then this other little suburb. And so technically my city council is this much smaller group that has doesn't have like the national media scrutiny that Portland does. Portland had a huge meeting yesterday with the city council about defunding the police. And it's like, well, I actually live in a neighborhood where the police are always around and they're this much smaller mm. group that doesn't have as much national accountability. And so, you know, we're just organizers are just now starting to be like, okay, this is what we need to do in this little suburb. So I think it's really important to really dig into where you are and who you can support where you are and to create these long-term pathways of advocacy of who you're listening to, who you're getting your cues from. It'd be awesome if churches, you know, could figure out what are the grassroots organizations that we support and we look to as far as like, how can we show up? Um, 
yeah, I think it's, it's a great time to be like, we need to pay attention to nationally, but what's really important for long-term change is going to be what's happening locally. Mm. Yeah. It's so gospel of you also, if I can just say to, to be focused on your neighborhood (laughs) and like realize, yeah, like widespread systemic change starts with local small relationships and community. Right. And Jesus sent them out two by two to go into, to the villages and to serve. And if, if they weren't received, then shake the dust off your feet and move on. So, um, but really if, if they were received, then they got to, to set up, set up their homes and love their neighbors. And isn't that what you're doing and showing us how to, what to do. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that reminder that ultimately when it comes to sharing power and I haven't gotten to the power section in your book, book yet, but I, I'm guessing knowing you, there's something about letting the neighbors <laughs> have the power. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, I think, um, I think an earlier question you asked, it sort of sparked something in me about yeah. you know, what's next is, What's really important for me is this idea of what God's dream for the world is. God's dream for the world is shalom, right? That's something that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper is one of my favorite theologians. She writes about this in the Very Good Gospel about shalom being talked about like over 550 times in the Bible. And what does shalom mean? It means everyone is flourishing in a community. And that's why the Hebrew scriptures talk all the time about these extremely vulnerable populations in a community, you know, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner, how we need to prioritize them. They always need to be at the forefront of our minds because if they're not flourishing, then nobody's flourishing. And so that's really the other thing we need to be thinking about in our neighborhoods, in our cities, Portland, you know, like basically every major city is extremely segregated by race and class. Not everybody is flourishing. And so what we need to do moving forward is we prioritize the places that are farthest from flourishing. We ask them, how can we support you? How can we help you? Um, And, you know, moving forward, that's how we rebuild things in, in a way that's more aligned with God's dream for the world. You look to that those vulnerable populations, we still have those exact populations, you know what I mean? Like who are at risk and our economic system, capitalism does not prioritize them. And so we, we need a new vision for the world. Amen to that. We need a new vision. And let's keep in mind that the vision is not the American dream. Oh, <laughs> if <no>. I can... <laughs> the vision no, is no. <laughs> in fact, the kingdom of God, which Jesus yeah. established, right? Oh, goodness. So in this, this messy journey that you're living of writing and um, uh, being a great neighbor, leading prayer groups, going to protest with your family, uh, doing everything you can to be a, really a student of the world and of life and, and build up God's reign. Um, I'm wondering what discipleship means to you. Like, yeah, in all of that context, for you, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's such a good question. And I think it's just recognizing that every day I have a chance to, um, you know, try and align myself to the wider work that God is doing in the world. So I, I still every day need to sort of grapple with this individualism that's built into me. And I would say also this um, like a white savior complex that is within me. And so that's kind of like my work of discipleship is learning how to uh, combat that, to repent of that, and to mm. just partner with all these amazing co-conspirators around me. Right now is a really hard time for me because I 
um, love being out and about with my neighbors and I love doing these tangible things like English classes. I have my degree in teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, and some of that is just because I like being useful. Perhaps some of that is just like, it makes me feel better about myself. Like I'm doing something tangibly, you know, I can't do any of that right now. And I'm truly like mostly at home with my kids and it's been a really hard time for me. And, you know, this is also an invitation of discipleship for me to say like, how do I get my self-worth? Am I using my neighbors to get my self-worth? Uh Oh, Mm. that's not good you know, that's not loving them. Um, how can I sort of take this time where we're sort of isolated and quarantined to really dig some deeper wells into, um, do I consider myself a beloved child of God, just as I consider my neighbors to be? How can we create these roots to, to do this long-term? You know, going back to Dorothy Day, you know, she did this work until she died. Uh, I know a lot of people who go into, you know, whatever they want to call it, justice work, being an intentional neighbor and then they just burn out. And I've, you know, I've, I've had 14 years to think about how to make this more sustainable. And, you know, this is just another opportunity to continue to say like, okay, how, how do we make sure the rhythms and what's going on? Like I can do this the rest of my life because I find joy in this work. And so I think that's kind of where I'm at too, is discipleship is this balance of looking at Jesus, the totality of Jesus's life. Um, Jesus did not just like go around only flipping tables, right? He also had a reputation of being like a glutton and a drunkard. (laughs) I'm not saying he was, that's just like what people said about him because he like, enjoyed a good dinner party and yeah you know stuff like that's really challenging for me because i'm like jesus was living through intense times right they had the roman occupation like a lot of people didn't even know where their next meal was coming from and yet he's taking the time to sit with people to eat food with them to laugh to talk to drink wine you know i'm like whoa this is like challenging for me but going forward looking at a sustainable life you need to have that whole expression of, of being a human and being in relationship with people which includes joy yeah, yeah, but also, I mean, I'm glad you got to the relationship because <laughs> that's key to me, <laughs> you yeah. know. And and just like a good relationship, it has to be a life of conversation and like, you know, okay, Jesus, where are we going next here? Oh, oh, okay, we're going there. Yeah, huh, surprise. <laughs> yeah, so isn't that the joy of it? Uh, okay, and lastly, I just I'm wondering for you and. And all, yeah, all the things that you're up to and this unique time that we're in, um, intense time as, as you would say, (laughs) um, what's messy, what's messy about being a disciple or living in living the gospel for you? Yeah, I think I probably just articulated how hard it is for me to just be at home right now. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think what's messy and will continue to be messy for me is how do you balance critiquing, you know, the culture you came from and at what point do you just sort of get kicked out <laughs> fully? <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, it doesn't actually feel much messier than normal. I think my, my, the way I go through life is just to really uh, invite in some angst and some uh, just this ability to say it's, it's not going to be perfect. So for me, that kind of feels just a little bit normal, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of enjoying watching other people like stumble into the messy. Is that mm-hmm. bad to say? I'm kind of like, welcome. The water's fine. Let's, yeah, yeah, Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to like have partners to share the, the messy witness with. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. 
Because otherwise last, it can feel lonely. And the last thing we need right now is people being like, oh, I know the exact answer of what we need to do right now. And here's right. the exact prayer yeah. we need to pray. I think everybody's like, no, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants that right now. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. kind of awesome. So it's, so are, are you saying that it's really like embracing like what's murky and confusing and unclear and vague and how like you have this desire to go out, but you have to stay in. So there's even the, I mean, that's a like, uh, you know, a very concrete way of it being a paradox, but like ultimately there's so much paradox and. Yeah. And I'll just give like a pretty, I'll, I'll give a specific example. So for instance, you know, I, again, I come from this world and just having conversations with people who are still very much in the white evangelical world to saying things like, oh yeah, we're sad about what happened to George Floyd, but it's really just a sin issue. And then just watching tons of people be like, no, huh. no, we don't get to just say we're going to wow. pray for hearts and times, you know, like, we're no, what we are going to do is we are going to look at this system and what it produces over and over and over again. And we're not going to let you just say this spiritual phrase on Facebook. Like we're going to come after you. And I, I just keep saying this over and yeah. over again. And people are like, oh, you don't get to just say thoughts and prayers. No, <laughs> no, it's right. not enough right now. So that's what I mean is it's getting messy. It's just like, okay, you said you're a Christian. You said you want to pray about this. Let's go. Let's right. go. Here's how yeah. we actually can pray. So I'm, I'm just really enjoying it. Because usually, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm used to saying stuff like that, you know, and people have unfriended me and all that stuff. But it's awesome to be like, people are coming out of the woodwork now. To, yeah, to yeah. Yeah. So so in a way, it, if we're getting to what's complicated, right, where, which understanding systemic change is a lot easier or a lot more challenging than like, black and white morality of like right and wrong where we can get very righteous about it. And so that I think um, invites us to a different level of maturity in our faith. And isn't that a beautiful thing? If our whole nation is moving through this time of reckoning to this place of like greater um, grappling together, I, I'm sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say that's basically the biggest shift I'm seeing is um, the shift from looking at individuals to looking at systemic issues. And so actually there's this amazing book called Disunity in Christ and it's written by two sociologists and they have found like white evangelicals in particular have no framework, almost zero framework for systemic issues because mm-hmm. our theology is so highly based on individualism. Um, it's actually spread out to our politics and the way we view economics and racism and all that stuff. And so I'm watching people in real time be like, oh my gosh, there's a system at work, you know? And it's, <sighs> it, it, I mean, the sooner the better. We got to get on that train of, yeah. of seeing the systemic evil at work. Wow. That's exciting. I well, welcome. I know. I know. <laughs> welcome to all your evangelical friends. In They're Sofa. late to the party, but still welcome. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's welcome. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, this has been so much fun. Um, thank you, DL. Is there anything else you want to share about your book or? No, I just really love talking to you and I feel like every day I'm inching closer to converting, but you know, (laughs) well, thank you for admitting that because, um, actually a couple of our writer friends, I'll tell you later who said to me, we wonder when she's going to (laughs) convert. 
So like, I think there's a pool or like maybe going. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, as my next book project, as soon as I can announce it, it's going to make people wonder even more. So <laughs> Great. I'll just tease that. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, well, God bless you and your family. And thank you so much for your ministry and your prophetic voice and all the ways that you're really scrutinizing uh, this complicated, messy world that we are a part of and that God has calling us to co-create with him. Love you so much. <laughs> Love you too, Julia. invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. In light of D.L. Mayfield's comments about the common good, I'm going to read you an, an excerpt from Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment called Laudato Si, paragraphs 156 through 158. If you are able, I invite you to close your eyes and take a slow, deep breath as you listen and pray as you consider what Pope Francis is declaring and teaching about what the common good means. A reading from Laudato Si. An integral ecology is inseparable from the notion of the common good, a central and unifying principle of social ethics. The common good is the sum of those conditions of social life which allow social groups and their individual members relatively thorough and ready access to their own fulfillment. Underlying the principle of the common good is respect for the human person as such, endowed with a basic and inalienable rights ordered to his or her integral development. It has also to do with the overall welfare of society and the development of a variety of intermediate groups, applying the principle of subsidiarity. Outstanding among those groups is the family, as the basic cell of society. Finally, the common good calls for social peace, the stability and security provided by a certain order which cannot be achieved without particular concern for distributive justice. Whenever this is violated, violence always ensues. Society as a whole, and the state in particular, are obliged to defend and promote the common good. In the present condition of global society, where injustices abound and growing numbers of people are deprived of basic human rights and considered, considered expendable, the principle of the common good immediately becomes logically and inevitably, a summons to solidarity and a preferential option for the poorest of our brothers and sisters. This option entails recognizing the implications of the universal destination of the world's goods. But, as I mentioned in the Apostolic Exhortation Evangel Evangelii Gaudium, it demands before all else an appreciation of the immense dignity of the poor in the light of our deepest convictions as believers. 
We need only look around us to see that today this option is in fact an ethical imperative essential for effectively attaining the common good. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to pray with me that our eyes are open, that we are paying attention. Let us pray for the graces and the courage to respond as God is calling us to, so that we each help build up a society where the common good is promoted and we have God's reign as our main dream. We pray all this through the awesome power of our brother Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen. That's episode five of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard, could you please do a bunch of things? Could you share with your friends? Subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and please leave us a review. Plus, I'd love it if you could become a fan on Patreon Patreon, and support this ministry. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. Thanks. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. Jesus, keep my eyes on you. Jesus, keep my eyes on you.